Luke 15, 1-10 Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord. Luke fifteen eleven to 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless, li reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back, safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, 
These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting, it is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Gospel of the Lord. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would inspire us to lay down whatever is holding us back today and come to Jesus. For we ask in his name. Amen. It's always a delight to worship with you all here at Emmanuel. I hope uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, I, I hear reports of the church from my friends Jim and Clint regularly. Uh, I see some of you in school pickup lines occasionally, uh, but it is always a delight uh, to get to worship with you. Uh, and today to speak on this incredible gospel passage, the 15th chapter of Luke. I do wonder how good of a friend Jim is for giving me 32 verses to preach on in 25 minutes, but that's a conversation for another time. There was a fascinating article, thought-provoking article, last month in The New Yorker. Uh, the article is entitled, Living in Adoption's Emotional Aftermath. It follows the story of Deanna Schrodes, amongst other people, but it starts with Deanna. She is a Pentecostal pastor in Florida, uh, very happily a pro-life advocate, uh, and she herself is an adoptee. In the article, she expresses frustration with fellow pro-lifers who assume that adoption is the win-win solution to abortion. As though once a baby is adopted, that's the end of the story. While she would agree with her fellow pro-lifers on the issue of abortion, her frustration is that a lot of pro-lifers don't understand the complexities, the emotional complexities of what it's like to be adopted. Among the dif many difficulties adoptees face, this one particularly caught my attention. I quote now from her. She says, a big thing that adoptees get frustrated by is when people say that adopting kids is no different. You know, if they say, if a parent says, I don't feel any different about my biological kids than my adopted kids. I'm just a mom. We're just a family, Deanna said, but that is simply not true. How many parents tell their adopted children, I love you as if you were my own? And how many of those children wonder, am I not your own? It's a penetrating question. I have uh, siblings who are adoptees, and it gave me much better perspective on uh, their life and what they must be wrestling with. This is not a sermon about the issue of abortion or even the emotional well-being of adoptees although both of those are very important topics. The reason that this quotation and this story arrested my attention is that the wrestling apparently many adoptees have, I'm not an adoptee, so I can't speak for them, but from this article, the wrestling that many adoptees have is similar to the wrestling 
many of us have in our relationship with God. We hear that God loves us. And we wonder, well, I'm sure God loves people. But I mean, God knows me. Does he really love me? Or we hear that God treats us as uh, treats us just as if I'd never sinned. You ever hear that one? Justification means it's just as if I'd never sinned. And we wonder or question whether God takes our sins seriously. And if he doesn't take our sins seriously, can we really trust him? Or we hear that we've been united to Jesus and that God treats us like sons and daughters. And we ask, but am I really your son? Am I really your daughter? Am I your own? That's where today's scripture holds out tremendous hope for us. Luke 15 consists, as you could see, and if you want to just turn in your program to pages eight and nine, because we're going to spend all of our time up pointing at different verses here and there, not going to try to unearth every detail of this passage. Thanks be to God. Um, But you can see that there's three stories here, right? The, The first one, is there on page eight when it starts with, so he told uh, them this parable. And then the second one begins in the next paragraph, or what woman, that's a second story. And then the third and longest one begins after the break at the bottom of page eight, where it says, and he said there was a man who had two sons. Three stories, three parables. Now, a parable, we don't talk about parables much these days, except when we're talking about Jesus giving them. Uh, So, Let me help explain what a parable is. A parable is a memorable story, or it could be a metaphor even, or just an analogy. But it's it's something memorable that Jesus gives us to engage our imagination. As you're reading, like you you can picture this, right? You can picture this woman looking for her silver coin. You can picture the father and son as they split up and then come back together. It engages our imagination but then it inspires self-examination and it compels us to respond. They're not just stories that you go, oh, that's a nice story, or you get a chuckle at the end of it. Jesus told these stories in a memorable way to inspire self-examination and to compel a response, which of course leaves us wondering, well, what response does Jesus want out of these three stories? And our author, St. Luke, puts these stories together on purpose. Whether or not Jesus told them side by side by side, it's quite likely that he did. But even if he didn't, Luke himself weaves these stories together with several threads. And I want to pick up on five of these threads that we see woven through these stories. And as we trace them, we'll discover what self-examination Jesus is calling us towards and then what response comes on the other side. The first thread in all three stories is that something valuable is lost. You see this in verse four. Which of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, one sheep, the shepherd in the story leaves the 99 who are safe and protected to go for the one. It's something valuable to the shepherd. In the second story, in verse 8, the thing that is valuable that is lost is a silver coin. This coin, a drachma, 
in that day was actually the purchase price of a sheep. If you wanted to buy a sheep, it was one drachma, one silver coin. If you had five, you could buy an ox. In an agricultural world, I mean, that's like, you know, I'm almost to a Tesla, right? You know, like if I got five of these, I could get a Tesla. Um, it's, it's a big deal in the agricultural world of, of the first century. This was a lot of money that she had lost. There was something valuable. Now, in the third story, what's lost is far more valuable than a sheep or a silver coin. It was a son. Now, there is a variable introduced here. The son is lost not in the same way that the, the coin and the sheep are lost. The sheep wandered off. The coin went under a sofa or something. I don't know. Uh, but the son lost. The son was lost because the son asked to leave. Father, give me my share. So we'll see in the third story, there are a few differences in how it unfolds. And yet the same thread runs through something valuable from the father's perspective, something valuable was lost of their own volition, but no doubt from his perspective, lost. The second thread, the first one is something valuable is lost. The second thread is the valuable thing is found. Verse five, when he found it, talking about the shepherd, finding the sheep. Verse nine, almost identical language, when she found it. The only difference is the he versus the she. When she found it. In a world, in, 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 in our world, if we want to emphasize something when we're telling a story, we click on the little button at the top of the page that says B, right? And make it bold or italics or underline or for really obnoxious, all three of them, right? This is important. In a world where stories and sayings were passed on orally the bold italic underline is the repetition like wait a second didn't he just say he found it and now he said she found it oh this must be important see he's connecting the stories together with repetition and then you look in the third story in verse 24 this is at the end of the long paragraph on page the top paragraph on page nine you see the father say he was lost and is found. The valuable thing is found. Okay, we've all experienced this, right? Whether it's house keys, your cell phone. My kids the other day were playing with Siri uh, and, and said, hey, Siri, where are you? And Siri's alarm went off and they, they found their phone. I was like, wow, that's helpful to know, right? We've all experienced that. But now the third thread adds something new to the story. The third thread is an invitation to rejoice with me. Okay, look at this in verse six. This shepherd who finds his lost sheep is so overjoyed that he says to his friends, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep. In the second story, the wording is exactly the same with the woman and the coin. In verse 9, rejoice with me for I have found. And then what changes is my coin. In the third story, you see it, the same, the same thread, different words. In verses 23 and 24, 
where the father is so overjoyed that his son has come home that he says, let us eat and celebrate. My son has been found. So you see what's happening in these three stories. Let's pause here for a moment. Something valuable is lost. That valuable thing is found. And then there is an invitation. Enter my joy. Rejoice with me. And I mean, goodness, in the third story, it is a party. Make no mistake. The the other son is coming in from the field and can hear the music and the dancing. Have you heard dancing? Do you know how loud dancing has to be for you to be able to hear it? I mean, it is a party, right? This is some serious joy that's going on. Now, the question, though, is, okay, I can see this in all these stories, but what, what's the point? What, what point is he trying to make here? In biblical interpretation, we, we say what's, when there's an analogy or a story like this, what we want to look for is what's the point of similarity? We don't want to just make up the point. What is the point of the story? It's kind of like the, the, the kid who heard the story of the boy who cried wolf. You know that story, right? And, and the, the parent is patiently telling their child the story of the boy who cried wolf to try to get their child to stop lying about things. And when they get to the end of the story and the wolf has come because nobody believed the boy and the flock all died and the kid was killed and all that, and the mom says, so, so do you understand what I'm saying to you? The child looks up at his mom and says, yes, I'll never be a shepherd. That's not the point of the story, right? What's the point of this story? Why is it he's telling us this? Let's go to the fourth thread and we'll start figuring out why. Jesus says twice, first in verse seven and then in verse 10, he uses this phrase, just so. What is he doing? He's saying, here's, my, here's the point of my story. Okay. The story is not, don't be a shepherd and don't lose your money. <laughs> That's not the story. The story is not, be a better dad. Here's the point. The fourth thread is, joy in heaven. And he's pulling this thread all the way through. In the first story, verse 7, he says, just so there will be joy in heaven. And then in verse 10, he says, just so there is joy before the angels of God. I misunderstood this for a very long time. I thought this was saying, man, the angels are celebrating right now. But did you see that it doesn't say there is joy in the angels of God or joy by the angels of God? Or from the angels, it says there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Well, friends, who is present in the, before the angels of God? God. Who's the exuberant one? Who's the exultant one? I mean, it's pretty cool to think of angels celebrating. That is pretty cool. That's nothing compared to God himself celebrating. 
in the language of Zephaniah 3, whirling around and dancing in joy over his people. That joy in heaven is reflected in the third story in verses 24 through 26, where they begin to celebrate, and there's music, and there's dancing, and they kill the fatted calf. Friends, the point of similarity between these stories and God, what Jesus is really talking about, the point of similarity is joy, the joy over a valuable thing lost that has been found. Which brings us to the fifth thread. What is it that inspires that joy? Well, look at verse 7. Joy in heaven over one sinner who, what? Repents. Verse 10. Joy before the angels of God over one sinner who does what? Repents. The fifth thread, friends, is that the cause of God's joy is repentance. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Aha! Here it is. Here's the point where the preacher is going to tell us all the things that I got to do. He's going to use the Bible to get me to do what he wants. Religion is just a tool of oppression. And if you're thinking that right now, I get it. I've been on the other side of that. I understand. Hold that thought, though, for a moment. Because the story, these, these stories might seem to validate your point, particularly the third one. I mean, you have this wayward child with, who lives recklessly and is left with nothing. I mean, how many New Yorkers share that story? And then the, 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 the young man comes to his senses and returned home. There's your repentance that brings great joy. And you say, see, you know, all you religious types, you just use stories like this to just oppress people and get them back in line. But friends, it's not where Jesus ends the story. That last paragraph on verse 9 about the older son. Here's this older son who always did what was asked. And in verse 28, he kind of appears out of nowhere. I mean, all these threads through all these stories, it's like, I get it, Jesus. And then wait, wait, what's this? This one, here's the music, here's the dancing, finds out why there's a party and is, in Jesus's words, angry. And he refused to join. Why in the world would Jesus tell us this story about the older brother? I mean, hasn't he made his point that if we repent, God himself will delight in us with great joy? Well, actually, no, he hasn't made the point he's been trying to make with all of these stories yet. Why does Jesus tell us about the older brother? He tells us about the older brother because of the situation he is addressing in that moment. What is that situation? Look at the very first paragraph of the story at the top of page eight. 
the tax collectors and sinners. Who is that? It's the people that everyone would look at and say, don't go down that street. You're going to get solicited to go down that street. The notable sinners. Everyone knew, like those people, their lives were way bad, 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 bad. They were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees, we read this and we think hypocrites, and well, we should. But for us to feel the weight of the first century, maybe think of it as, and the clergy, the pastors, the super spiritual ones, grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Friends, Jesus adds the story about the older brother because the older brother is the religious types. The religious types are the older son angry about sinners, the notorious finding grace. But who's the sinner now? It's actually not the reckless one who's come home. It's the religious one who hears God saying, rejoice with me and says no i've worked all my life building up spiritual credibility before everyone i know i am not going to dishonor all the work i've done to show just how righteous i am by celebrating that that person gets grace They refuse the father's invitation and instead criticize the father's grace. See, friends, Jesus is not telling bad people, you need to repent and be like the religious types. Jesus is telling everyone, God invites you into his joy, but you have to lay down your reckless living and your religiosity. And that's hard news for religious types like me to hear. I like my religiosity. I like my spiritual disciplines. I like my formative practices and rhythms. And they have their place. But Jesus is saying that before the presence of God, my religiosity gets me nowhere. And in fact, it can threaten to do harm to others. My spirituality prevents me from rejoicing in God's grace to people I think are undeserving. The only one who needs to repent is me. My friends, there is this incredible word of hope, though, in this passage for the reckless and the religious. And that is that this younger son in the third story who's often called the prodigal son, prodigal meaning extravagantly wasteful. The prodigal son is actually a pale reflection of the true and greater son, Jesus himself. 
See, like the prodigal son, Jesus left his father. Unlike the prodigal, he didn't leave because he asked to leave. He left at his father's request. And like the prodigal, Jesus, the true and greater prodigal son, was extravagantly wasteful in giving away everything he had. Unlike the prodigal, he gave it away not for his own pleasure, but for everyone else's joy. As he walked through the valley of Baca, he made it a place of springs. Like the prodigal, he ended up eating with those that the religious despised. Jesus might as well have crawled into the pig pen. As long as he's going to eat with tax collectors and sinners. But unlike the prodigal, when Jesus was at his lowest, instead of figuring out how to save his life, even at the cost of embarrassment, Jesus gave his life away. To save the lives of those he loves. You see, friends, Jesus lived like us and unlike any of us. He lived the life we failed to live and then died the death each of us should have died for our recklessness and our religiosity. To show that God is serious about sin. But then on the third day, Jesus walked out of the grave. And on this last Sunday of the Easter season, as we conclude our reflections of the triumph of Jesus over sin and over death, we celebrate his ascension into the very presence of God. Can you envision this scene of the prodigal's return played out in heaven when Jesus came home? Can you imagine the joy of the Father, the joy before the angels of God, as he, God, rejoiced over the one who needed no repentance, who always did what his father wanted, had fulfilled his will, had died for the sins of the world, risen from the dead, and is now home. Can you imagine the father's joy over Jesus in that moment in the ascension? I think we can still hear the dancing down here from it. But friends, there's more. There's more. And I'll show you what's more. Some of you actually are thinking, hey, he misread a verse back there. I'm going to talk to him about that. Why did he misread that verse? Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Did you notice what verse 7 says? It does not say there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. It says there will be more joy in heaven over the one who repents than over the 99 who needed no repentance. Friends, there's only one person who needed no repentance. There's not 99. There's not two. There's one. His name is Jesus. Yet when sinners like you and I come home, cast aside our recklessness 
cast aside our religiosity and come home, there is more joy over us, over you. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Friends, that's how much God loves you. That's how deeply he values you as his child. That's how secure you are, that you are his own. So friends, lay, lay all your trophies down, every accomplishment you've had. Lay all of your embarrassments down, all of your shame. And run home. Come to this table and feast on his love for you. Let's pray. Father, such joy over us is incomprehensible. But we take Jesus' words seriously. And we revel in it. And so now, as we move into a time of communion, let us taste not only bread and cup, but let us taste your mercy and your delight in us. The valuable things that have been lost, you have found. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.